Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Pit Golems, a Karnaki the Ghostfinder story, by Ian Gordon, based on characters created by William Hope Hodgson. The dining room was unusually bright, as the four of us, Arkwright, Jessop, Taylor, and I, were ushered by our friend and estimable host to our customary places at the dinner table. We ate well under the glow of several newly acquired lamps, filled with a sense of unspoken anticipation concerning the tale our host had undoubtedly summoned us to tell. Following dessert, glasses of port were poured, and the four of us gathered round Karnaki's big chair. He began forthwith. "'You may have noticed my new lamps, chaps,' he said, motioning towards the numerous sources of light scattered throughout the dining-room. "'Well, I'll get to that. You see, I've just got back from North Yorkshire, where I was investigating an unusual case of interloping, in the village of Gilbeck, high up in the dales, north of Skipton. An acquaintance of mine, and yours too, Dodson, the occultist John Hall, a fellow with whom I've spent many an hour debating the merits of investigations into the supernatural, happened to draw my attention to the case in question, highlighting a series of bizarre encounters in the remote village, encounters alarming to its residents. According to Hall, a band of queer-looking strangers were said to be wandering the streets after dark, disturbing the peace. Livestock had been pilfered, with some residents reporting sightings of the interlopers in their backyards. The police had investigated the reports, but regrettably dismissed them, owing to a lack of physical evidence. But what caught Hall's attention was the repeated reference to a nearby mine, an abandoned colliery the villagers had long associated with necromancy. It was the belief of many that the nocturnal visitors were inhabitants of Gilbeck Colliery. Intrigued, I made my way to Skipton, and secured myself transportation to Gilbeck. Paul had arranged for me to meet with the village librarian, a lady by the name of Janet Smalley, and so, upon my arrival in the quiet hamlet, I saw to it that my first port of call was Gilbeck Library. As I made my way through the village, directed as I was by a number of exquisite signposts, I found myself utterly absorbed, and somewhat taken aback by the tranquillity of the place. There wasn't a soul in sight, which, I concluded, was due to recent events, but I have to say that I found Gilbeck's quiet cobbled streets utterly charming. The trees along the avenues were positively boastful, their elegant canopies held aloft in a most grandiose fashion. <laughs> but this isn't a yarn about flora, chaps. I located the library— and, upon entering, was warmly welcomed by Smalley, an extremely bright and accommodating young lady, tall, too. She stood at six feet, by my reckoning. She was accompanied by an incongruous individual, with a most disquieting gait. The result of a clubbed foot was my initial surmise. An ancient, crooked fellow introduced to me as Beardsworth. But despite Smalley's extended courtesy on the man's behalf, he hadn't a word for the cat, if you'll mind the expression. What his interest was in my appointment with the librarian I had in the foggiest, but the young lady seemed to be comfortable in his company. Formalities exchanged, Smalley got to the matter at hand, expanding upon Hall's account, all the while observed by the eavesdropping Beardsworth. It was quickly decided that I would spend the night at her cottage at the edge of the village, 
The guest bedroom on the first floor, she said, overlooked Gilbeck Fell, the barren hillside upon which the old colliery stood. The librarian insisted that a thirty-minute vigil after midnight would guarantee a first-hand sighting of the pale folk, as she described them. Leaving Beardsworth to fend for himself, Smalley and I walked to the cottage as the last of the daylight sparkled across the craggy summit of Gilbeck Fell. We enjoyed a cup of tea together, whilst the young lady familiarised me with the village and its history, emphasising the closure of the colliery some ten years earlier. She spoke of the necromancer that was rumoured to haunt the dilapidated pithead, an unidentified individual said to have once been a member of the community. What this person's intentions were, she, nor anybody else in Gilbeck, was wont to guess, though it was clear that the librarian had more than a superficial interest in the mysterious figure. Copies of both notes on the spectacle of Toth and Sefer are present in the dining-room, attested to the fact. After supper, I settled in the guest bedroom. Unpacking some of my stuff, a hyssop sphere and a hip-flask full to the brim with scotch, I positioned myself by the rear window, and gazed out at the menacing silhouette of Gilbeck Fell. Now, I feel it necessary to preface what I am about to say with the following statement— there was no doubt in my mind whatsoever that we were dealing with a group of mischievous human beings, and so, when those four figures emerged from the fell at approximately twenty minutes past twelve that night, it was with conviction that I gave Smalley my opinion. I think she was disappointed, to tell you the truth. She'd believe the interlopers were merely phantoms, conjured spirits of some kind, certain that as an investigator I'd be able to dispel them. But with living, breathing, Human culprits, there are no convenient revocations, no magical remedies. One must approach the situation rationally. And so, that's precisely what I did. I informed Smalley of my intention to confront the interlopers, and, clutching a lantern, I strolled out onto the gravel track between the cottage and its neighbouring barn. In the dim light of a waning crescent moon, I approached the unwelcome strangers, all four of whom, some thirty yards or so ahead of me, appeared to have stopped in their tracks. I didn't get a good look, as you can imagine. The moonshine was soft, and the range of the lantern was limited, but I saw enough to appreciate what it was that had disturbed the villagers so. The interlopers were pale from top to bottom, suggestive of the fact that they were either naked, or dressed in close-fitting, colourless clothing. They were remarkably tall. Even from a distance of thirty yards this was abundantly clear. And, most curiously, the strangers stood at precisely the same height, mounds of silver hair atop their pallid heads shimmering in the moonlight. I shouted, Hello there, a couple of times, with the same result. No rejoinder. I crept towards them cautiously, mindful of the assertion that the four of them were guilty of trespassing, and responsible for the theft of livestock. They were potentially dangerous chaps. But in the end, they must have decided that it was I that was dangerous— the interlopers turned and fled. Karnaki lit a cigar. A few enthusiastic puffs ensued, then he continued. I returned to Smalley's cottage. Janet was waiting for me in the kitchen. I related my brief encounter, in response to which the lanky librarian, in total silence, poured the two of us a cup of tea. She sipped nervously, with an eye on the door. I reassured her the best I could— insisting that there was nothing else to be done at such a late hour. To reassure her further, 
I said that I'd be more than happy to pay a visit to the mine the following morning, if for no other reason than to put the stories of necromancy to rest. I felt sympathy for not only the young lady in my presence, but for the community at large. The police had dismissed their complaints, and so I felt it pertinent to conclude my investigation. Smalley thanked me for my concern, and offered to accompany me as a guide, an offer I graciously accepted. Then we retired for the night. I arose bright and early, committed to the promise I had made to the troubled librarian. Smalley prepared breakfast, a hearty affair, fit for those about to tread uncertain terrain. Afterwards, we made our way to the village hardware store, in order to acquire the requisite equipment for the task at hand. I have to point out, chaps, that I hoped to avoid entering the mine, but, on the off-chance such a descent was necessary, I felt it appropriate we furnish ourselves with the following—a number of light sources, four flashlights to be precise, in addition to a dark lantern, a safety helmet apiece, a climbing rope, and two dozen candles, these items as well as my usual necessities. Word soon got round of my plan. Several villagers approached me directly, grateful for my commitment to solving a local mystery. The old fellow with the clubbed foot, Beardsworth, was on the prowl again, eyeing me with that deep scowl of his. It seemed that wherever Smalley and I went, he was there, watching, listening. By ten a.m., the young librarian and I were ascending Gilbeck Fell by way of the old gravel track, in the direction of the colliery. I don't mind admitting that it was quite a climb, chaps. Atop the fell stood what remained of the colliery's pithead, the rusty head-frame and a number of crumbling stone buildings, any one of which, according to Smalley, could be the necromancer's base of operations. Despite my efforts to convince her otherwise the night before, she was steadfast in her belief that a mysterious sorcerer was at the heart of the thing. At a glance, the site looked utterly abandoned, silent as the grave. Wearily, we entered the largest of the stone buildings. What a jumble it was! Collapsed rafters, rotten beams, it was in a tremendous state of disrepair. We trod with great care. A foot wrong in that place would have put a premature end to the investigation. Fortunately, the old roof had mostly perished, revealing a vast window to the sky, illuminating the detritus through which we were carefully sifting. I was on the lookout for paraphernalia, amulets and candles, alembics and beakers, anything to suggest the site had once been repurposed as a shrine to necromancy. But no such items were located, much to Smalley's chagrin. As we explored the other buildings, all of which were similarly dilapidated, it became increasingly clear to me that the site, at least above ground, had been vacant for a very long time. If the four interlopers were based at the colliery, they were undoubtedly to be found underground. Evidence to suggest that I was correct in my surmise presented itself shortly afterwards, as Smalley and I inspected the head-frame. On entering the hoist-room at its base, I immediately noticed, amongst the clutter and rusty machinery, a well-trodden path. Cautiously, we followed it. After a distance of twenty feet or so, the path intersected a wooden staircase, a descending flight that skirted the walls of the mineshaft itself, serving as an entrance to the tunnels beneath. Switching our flashlights on, we targeted the illimitable gulf below, revealing the sobering extent of the staircase. <laughs> An incredibly discouraging sight, chaps. Smalley donned her helmet, 
a gesture sufficient enough to inform me that she intended to descend, with or without me. I tried to discourage her, highlighting the inherent dangers associated with entering a disused mine, but Smalley insisted that the source of Gilbeck's troubles lay down there in the darkness, and that she meant to identify it. It was about this time that I heard the unmistakable sound of footfalls behind us in the hoist-room. I turned to meet the source of the noise, and directed the glare of my flashlight towards it. Bobbling in our direction was Beardsworth, his shambling gait unmistakable even in the shadows. Smalley called to him, cursing his judgment and choosing to follow us, but the man offered nothing in return. He stepped out onto the wooden staircase, and eyeballed the blackness below with his deep-set, inquiring eyes. We left him there observing the gloom, bolstered by the fact that the old man would assuredly remain there. After all, he hadn't a safety helmet, nor a flashlight. As a matter of fact, he carried nothing whatsoever on his person. Down we went, Smalley and I, round and round in laborious circles, till, some two hundred steps later—I'd been keeping count—we reached the bottom of that wearying flight. The air had grown increasingly foul with every step. I could taste it at the back of my throat, the essence of rotten wood mixed with charcoal. We found ourselves standing in a cramped chamber, within which four shadowy tunnel-mouths beckoned us towards further gloom. I made a careful examination of the ground beneath our feet, and noted dozens of distinct footprints in the dust, some of which, I have to add, were made by bare feet. The impression seemed to be concentrated in a straight line between the bottom of the staircase and the leftmost tunnel, which, according to my compass, ran to the east. Lighting a candle, I placed it by the mouth of the tunnel, and, hesitantly, Smalley and I entered the passage. I can't say I've ever been particularly claustrophobic, chaps, but I don't mind admitting that I fell prey to that unwelcome sensation down there in the dark. Flashlights, and dark lanterns for that matter, do a poor job of illuminating a space. And so, deep in the earth, with naught but a pitiful beam of light to guide you, it's not so surprising that one should feel like a fish out of water. Oh, to be a coal-miner! Pushing the claustrophobia to the back of my mind, Smalley and I edged ever forward into the blackness. The young lady's constitution amazed me. She walked with her head held high, determined to uncover the truth she believed dwelt in those godforsaken corridors. And it wasn't long before her fortitude bore fruit. Having followed the passage unwaveringly for some ten minutes or so, we happened upon an opening in the tunnel wall to our left. Its outline was incredibly rough, suggesting that the original miners had encountered a natural fissure in the bedrock. I immediately noted that the footprints we'd been following veered off into the opening, and so, once again, I lit a candle, placed it in the dust, and we crossed the threshold. Confirming my supposition, Smalley and I found ourselves traversing the irregular passages of a natural cavern. We crept through it carefully, lighting candles at perceived junctions, and looking for signs of activity in the sand beneath our feet. Presently, I became aware of a dim luminescence ahead. At my suggestion, Smalley and I switched off our flashlights, and continued towards it. Accompanying the glow was a low hum, the drone of something electrical. Nearing the source of the luminescence, we noted that the glare was propagating from a large, open grotto. It was with the utmost vigilance 
that we entered that great space. But I guess, I'd say the grotto was some fifty feet in diameter, above the uneven surface of which striking stalactites drooped in disquieting groups. In the far corners, shadowy recesses refused to reveal their secrets. But out in the open, under the glow of that strange light, tables and workbenches full to the brim with laboratory equipment indicated the recent presence of persons unknown. There were alembics and retorts, microscopes and polariscopes, gas burners and thermometers, parabolic reflectors and gyroscopes, all manner of apparatus. But the truth of the matter is, chaps, that the items strewn across the tables and workbenches were of little interest, compared with the curious contraption we observed beyond them. In a natural recess to the north of the lab equipment stood four interlocked pods, or vats, each ten feet in height, filled with a dense, milky fluid. A network of brass pipes connected the vats to a large machine, a rectangular contrivance encased in a smooth, dull metal, which appeared to be the source of both the weird glow and the electrical drone I described. Smalley was quick to speak of necromancy, though I felt relatively certain that the wizard in this case was more a practitioner of the sciences than he was a devotee of the dark arts. Still, erring on the side of caution, I opted to withdraw a number of items from my satchel—those necessities I mentioned earlier—as one can never be completely sure that supernatural forces aren't involved in some capacity. As you know, chaps, necromancers and scientists alike, on more occasions than I care to count, have been known to exploit rituals such as the Samar and the Treatise in order to advance their agendas. To protect the two of us from any unwanted attention, I went about my routine with a piece of chalk and a handful of shredded rosemary leaves. The leaves, in conjunction with a false Lazarus circle, form a pretty effective barrier against astral intruders. I needn't mention that business down at Briar House now, do I, chaps? For added protection, with the ink of a cuttlefish, I printed a seer star on the back of Smalley's hand, then printed its male equivalent, the bar star, on my own. Thereafter, I decided to take a closer look at the strange vats in the recess. Even with the aid of a flashlight, I was unable to get a good look at what they contained. The milky fluid concealed their contents, and there appeared to be no obvious means by which to open them. It was intriguing that there were four of them in total, considering the village of Gilbeck was being disturbed night after night by four individuals. But my implication that the vats might, at one time, have housed the nocturnal prowlers, Smalley seemed to lose some of her brazen courage. She recoiled, shivering. I was in the act of consoling the young librarian, when, quite suddenly, we were plunged into total darkness. In the same instant, the machine that had throbbed and hummed ceased to operate, denying a second sense its stimulus. The gloom wrapped about us like velvet. There was a tangibility to it, as though the pair of us had been directly introduced to the smothering fabric of space. Attempts to switch our flashlights on failed, and I was just about to withdraw the dark lantern, when two distinct sounds followed. First came to my ears the distant clatter of footfalls, a single individual, one foot after the other but the steps were uneven, oddly distributed, as though the figure responsible suffered from a clubbed foot, perhaps. Second, in addition to the steadily encroaching footfalls, I heard a queer sloshing noise emanating from the recess to my rear. Liquid was draining away, 
precisely akin to the sound one hears when a bathtub is purged of its last gallon of water. Can you imagine the scene? The steps came closer and closer, till I was absolutely sure that the stranger had reached the entrance to the grotto. There the sound ceased, and once again silence reigned supreme. Smalley broke the silence, when she whispered, "'Thomas, Thomas, are you there?' "'Yes,' I answered quietly. "'We're not alone.' Presently, the invisible stranger standing at the threshold of the cavern switched on a flashlight. Smalley and I recoiled from the light, turning away from it. As we did so, our unsuspecting eyes fell upon a ghastly sight in the recess. The milky fluid had completely drained from the vats, revealing four figures, the interlopers, each one standing upright in their respective pods, the glass casings of which had retracted inexplicably. This we observed in the flickering, unsteady glare of the stranger's flashlight beam. I turned to behold the bearer of the light, but was unable to perceive the figure standing at the back of it. "'Who are you?' I inquired. "'What do you want?' But the stranger's silence spoke volumes. Coupled with the irregular footfalls I'd heard, I concluded that the individual was none other than Beardsworth, the snooping old man who had followed us to the brink of the mine. But I kept my surmise to myself. Under the intense glare of the flashlight, I turned once again to the figures in the vats, withdrawing the dark lantern in the process. The instant I lit the wick, the stranger at the entrance to the grotto began to retreat. It was clear to me at this interval that Beardsworth had no intention of being positively identified. I moved closer to the drained pods, and studied the leftmost figure intently under the glow of the lantern. The occupant within was slender to the point of emaciation, its white skin luminescent. I say it, as the creature standing before me could hardly be described as human. I made a grave error when I told Smalley that the nocturnal visitors were human beings. This thing was a slick, rubbery approximation of a human being, a golem, created by persons unknown, in order to fulfil some dark purpose. Beardsworth was assuredly the master of these abominations, and had discovered a monstrous means by which to animate them, to imbue them with a semblance of primitive function, in order to carry out his will. But the golem's eyes were closed, and despite my attempts to provoke it, the mannequin failed to respond to stimulus. What it was that had given the creature's life was assuredly associated with the odd metal machine that, up until the moment we were plunged into darkness, had glowed and hummed so incessantly nearby. Smalley, whose ebbing bravery had begun to flow once again, approached the golem to the immediate right of me, took hold of its rubbery arm, and yanked it from its vat. Out it came, and toppled to the ground. In the semi-darkness, I watched in stark horror, as the false human came apart, its intricate innards contaminating the dusty floor of the grotto. Then, its counterpart, the very figure I had been examining, opened dull grey eyes to its fallen sibling, and, beholding its condition, turned cold angry ones upon Smalley. It shambled forwards, clutching. In the commotion, the golem's spindly leg came into contact with the length of rope that was hanging from my backpack. Down it went, just like its brother, exploding as it hit the cold stone floor. Can you picture the scene? Pale creatures that looked and moved as human beings, sensitive to the slightest blow, 
falling to their deaths in grisly fashion, all witnessed under the glow of a single inefficient lantern? I doubt you can, chaps. In the moments that followed, the remaining two waxen facsimiles opened their eyes, and ogled us intently. Neither of them moved. They simply watched in a sort of absent daze, as if awaiting further instructions from a remote, commanding force. I grabbed Smalley by the hand, and, armed with the dark lantern, fled with her in tow, out of the grotto, and back in the direction of the main tunnel. But somehow we lost our bearings. The candles we'd left burning were nowhere to be seen, and so, when we finally came upon a man-made tunnel, we couldn't be sure that it was the same tunnel we'd been traversing prior to entering the fissure. Beardsworth, no doubt, was responsible for the missing candles. He'd extinguished them in an effort to disorientate us. We were lost, hopelessly lost. My compass was useless, too. The needle simply revolved wildly, a result of its exposure to that strange metal machine, I theorized. We navigated tunnel after tunnel in a blind panic, encountering dead end after dead end. Presently, we came upon another impasse, and so we decided to take a moment to reassess our approach to the situation. Having been guided by the dark lantern thus far, we tried our flashlights again. As luck would have it, they were operational once more. Reassured, I rotated the shutter of the dark lantern, in order that we might discuss our options under the cover of darkness. Somewhere, out there in the depths of the labyrinth, we heard the vague suggestion of footsteps. But not those of Beardsworth. These were multiple, light, regular footfalls belonging to persons fleet-footed, mindless prowlers seeking their prey. We kept our voices low. What are they? Smalley asked. Prototypes, I answered. Prototypes? Smalley echoed. We have in our midst a mad scientist, I offered. These creatures are the basis for something much more sinister. I believe your necromancer is in the process of developing vessels, host bodies for abhuman entities. I concluded that if the pair of us, Smalley and I, were able to escape the mine without the golems following us, that an explosive device of sufficient magnitude might be used to bring the head-frame down upon the shaft— thus sealing the creatures inside, along with the laboratory and its contents. It simply remained for us to find our way back to the staircase, a task far from straightforward. When navigating a maze—a typical hedge maze, for example—one can secure a means of escape by following a single, uncomplicated principle. Commit to a single direction, left or right. And so, I opted to guide the two of us out of the mine by sticking to that principle. No matter the nature of the junction, we would opt for the leftmost path, provided it was man-made, of course. With the dark lantern held aloft before us, we drew ourselves up against the leftmost wall of the tunnel, and resumed our long and tedious journey back to the staircase, all the while mindful of the distant efforts of the surviving golems. Rats and other vermin were familiar with the halls, too, and were brazen in their approaches, coming all too close to us on more than one occasion, threatening to alert our seekers. But we remained calm, and continued resolute. Can you imagine it, chaps? Two hapless explorers, deep in the mines, hunted by golems, rats our only company? I was suffering from shortness of breath, 
and the air was stale and humid, making progress difficult. We paused more times than I dare to recall, eagerly sipping at the paltry supply of water we carried in water-skins, perpetually weary of our pursuers. And not only them, what of Beardsworth, the unwelcome visitor who, in no uncertain terms, had brought about our present circumstances? Hours elapsed down there in the gloom. The scenery was repetitious and unchanging, and still, tunnel after tunnel, junction after junction, we went left, always left. Several times we heard our pursuers nearby, a couple of tunnels over, or a matter of yards to our rear, seeking us with an obstinate tenacity. It was during those dark moments that I contemplated the purpose of the golems. We've discussed the outer monstrosities many times, chaps, and have spoken of that inscrutable protective force that defends the human soul from such abominations. It occurred to me that perhaps the scientist behind the creation of the creatures had discovered a way in which to circumvent the protective force, in order to provide the outer monstrosities with a physical presence here among men. A dreadful philosophical question arose in my mind. Would the protections and rituals we'd grown to rely upon in the face of evil still serve us in the presence of that evil made flesh? That notion haunted me down there in the mines, but it also spurred me on, reminding me of the importance of making it back to the world of light, to put a stop to the madness at hand. On we pressed, Smalley and I, weak and exhausted, relentlessly chasing our goal. Eventually, we came upon that which we sought, the cramped chamber at the bottom of the staircase. It was no exaggeration to conclude that we covered a number of miles down there in the old tunnels, and, miraculously, had succeeded in avoiding our pursuers in the process. But as I contemplated that success, we heard footsteps once more, much closer than before. With what remained of our rapidly diminishing energy reserves, Smalley and I mounted the first stair, and took off climbing at a tremendous pace. Moments later, the creatures were in pursuit. Only, something unexpected played a part in our escape. The golems seemed perplexed by the stairs. Fleet-footed though they had been on solid ground, faced with the relatively mundane task of climbing a flight of stairs, the pair were forced to crawl on their hands and knees, their imitation brains unable to process the complex variables required to ascend on two feet. Encouraged but mindful, Smalley and I pressed on, ever upwards, till the slow-climbing golems were far below us, in the inky blackness. Can you picture it, chaps? Pale mannequins crawling on all fours, their dull grey eyes full of malignant intent? Much to our relief, we reached the surface, but upon entering the hoist-room, we suffered a shock. The body of Beardsworth lay in a crumpled heap amongst the rubble and rotting equipment. My initial impression was that he had suffered a blow to the head, but we had little time to contemplate his passing. And then, suddenly, an almighty crash sounded in the mineshaft to our rear. Turning, our gazes met dancing flames, the result of some sort of bottle-bomb tossed into the shaft by persons unknown. The fire rapidly consumed the wooden stairs, crimson tongues lapping at clouds of smoke, as Smalley and I watched, bewildered. In a matter of minutes, the topmost steps buckled, resulting in a cascade effect. The entire structure gave way. 
Smalley and I fled through the hoist-room, and into the last light of day. There was an almighty whoosh, as a huge ball of flame drove its way up the tunnel, then exploded in a cloud of orange light and charred debris, obliterating the head-frame in the process. That was the end of Gilbeck Colliery Chaps. Smalley and I returned to the village, in order to contact the fire brigade. The firemen fought the blaze throughout the night. By morning, little remained of the old colliery, other than the walls of the stone buildings, and the sinister outline of the fallen head-frame. Undoubtedly, the slow-climbing golems were crushed in the stair collapse. If the fates of their fragile siblings were anything to go by, there would be nothing left. Later, Smalley and I were tasked with relaying our adventure to the police. Several questions needed to be answered. What were we doing there? What started the fire? And, chiefly, what happened to Richard Beardsworth? Well, chaps, I'll tell you how I answered those questions right now. What were we doing there? Well, that was an easy enough question to answer. I simply explained that I had been called, as a private investigator, to inspect reports of livestock thieves operating in the village after dark. I went on to say that an encounter with said interlopers led Smalley, who was assisting me, and I, to Gilbeck Colliery, where we took the unfortunate decision to descend into the mine in order to locate the culprit's hideout. What started the fire? Again, my answer was pretty straightforward. I didn't know. Nor did Smalley. Whoever was responsible for tossing that bottle-bomb into the mine-shaft was beyond our reckoning. What happened to Richard Beardsworth? Now that question presented a bit of a quandary, chaps. You remember, I said that Smalley and I stumbled upon Beardsworth's body in the hoist-room. Well, we described as best we could the precise location of the body before the fire broke out. Later, when sifting through the debris, the police unearthed no evidence that a body had been present, no bones, no personal effects, with the exception of one intriguing anomaly, an artificial limb. This prosthesis, as described by the police, resembled a human foot, and appeared to have been composed of a firm rubber, the likes of which the various experts the police consulted had never seen before. It is my surmise, chaps, and yes, I left this out at the station, that Beardsworth wasn't the individual responsible for the golems. That the old fellow was acquainted with the true culprit, though, I have no doubt. I learned, through means of several guarded inquiries throughout the village, that Beardsworth lost his left foot in, as fate would have it, a mining accident several decades earlier. I also learned that the prosthesis which resulted in that awkward gait of his was provided by the village doctor at the time, a man by the name of Samuel Smalley. Yes, chaps, the father of Janet. Dr. Smalley had a reputation throughout the village for being something of a recluse. Janet's cottage on the old colliery track had in fact been the doctor's home, prior to what a number of villagers referred to as his mysterious disappearance. And it gets spookier, chaps. According to the dozen or so people I talked to on the matter, not a single one could remember Janet's birth, nor could anybody recall her as a child, or a teenager. Old Sam wasn't even married. It was assumed he had simply adopted the young lady. Are you beginning to see, chaps? Here's the top and bottom of it. The good doctor got to dabbling with the strange alchemical formulas he found in certain rare books. Don't forget, I glimpsed copies of notes on the spectacle of Toth and Sefer Yetzer in Janet's dining room. 
and found that he could fashion rudimentary body parts. It was during these early stages of experimentation, no doubt, that he gifted Beardsworth the artificial foot, introducing the latter to his unusual pursuits. Inspired by the success of the prosthesis, the doctor had Beardsworth assist him with his work, delving ever deeper and deeper into the fundamentals of animation. Notes on the spectacle of Toth includes a cautionary passage on the subject of the golem, stating that a creature composed of certain materials may in fact, under the right conditions, serve as a conduit for certain abhuman entities, allowing them to walk among men. Excited by this prospect, the doctor continued his experiments with fervour, until finally he mastered the assembly of a functional golem. But his first creation was too perfect, too human, and so a story of adoption was concocted. But his work continued, whilst Janet, adapting to her life as a would-be human being, blossomed. Can you imagine it, chaps? Eventually, the doctor realised that his work could no longer continue in the presence of the villagers, and so he arranged for his disappearance, but not before establishing a base of operations in the abandoned mine, transporting the equipment and materials necessary to fashion for himself a functional laboratory. Leaving Janet under the illusion he had passed on, he continued his work in the grotto, hoping to replicate the success he'd had with his supposed daughter. He would leave the solitude of the mine under the cover of darkness to seek out food and supplies, but this was very risky. So, instead, and to test the aptitude of his infant golems, he opted to send them out into the night on his behalf, to obtain the supplies he required, certain that their unusual appearance would deter villagers from reporting sightings of such unlikely creatures to the police. But Dr. Smalley didn't count on the fact that his first creation, Janet, would learn so quickly, becoming worldly in a matter of months, and curious too. Suitably intrigued by the thieving interlopers, she contacted the venerable John Hall, who, of course, referred the case to yours truly. If Janet and I hadn't descended into those mines when we did, who knows how far the old doctor might have taken things. The very thought chills me to the core. Naturally, I chose not to share my theory with Janet. Without proof, I am not sure what such a hypothesis would do to the poor girl. As for the doctor, his whereabouts remain unknown. And that's about all there is to tell. Perhaps you'll now understand the purpose of these new lamps, chaps. I've never been more appreciative of the light they provide. Questions? The four of us simply gulped at our friend and host. It was Taylor who broke the silence. Does she know what she is? he asked. I mean, do you think she knows what she is? It's my belief that the young lady knows that something isn't quite right. It's that same inexplicable something that undoubtedly gave her the impetus to start asking questions to begin with. As to whether or not she knows she's a golem, no, I don't think she does. Do you think she's alive? I asked. A good question, but not easily answered. I refer you back to notes on the spectacle of Toth. That which breathes and eats and sleeps may not necessarily be alive, but that which speaks and thinks and schemes is assuredly the essence of life. A better question would be, what kind of life is it she has? And my answer to that is, a rich life, full of purpose. What was the doctor hoping to achieve by exposing you to the golems? Arkwright put in. 
Well, just as he'd had them do his dirty work in fetching food and supplies, I imagine his intention was to have the golems take care of us, as it were, and to sacrifice his own daughter in the process? This from Jessop. Janet wasn't terribly important to the doctor, as evidenced by his decision to have her believe he was dead. I assert that his primary motivation was to lure me into the mines. Remember, the authorities weren't a threat to him, but a private investigator with an interest in the occult? When the golems failed, he was left with only one option—to set the mine ablaze. I believe poor Beardsworth just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But knowing what I know now, his persistent curiosity is less of a mystery to me. "'What about the doctor?' I asked. "'What do you think he'll do now?' "'I don't know, Dodgson. I'd say he'll be on the lookout for a new base of operations. Judging by his rate of success, a man like that won't succumb to minor setbacks. I only worry for Janet.' Karnacki nodded his head grimly, and extinguished his cigar. Rising, he escorted the four of us to the door. "'Out you go,' he said, in his usual friendly manner and we went out into the embankment, hopeful that the days of the witch-doctor, Samuel Smalley, were numbered. <laughs>